0: There's no one right path to lead someone to law school. Whether you come to it from a creative writing program or an engineering program, from binging courtroom dramas, or just being passionate about a specific issue, each student comes with their own unique strengths and challenges that ultimately inform their legal philosophy, their choice of practice area, their mission. But despite this understood truth of our diverse origin stories, the idea of someone coming to law school from a 10-year prison sentence for robbery may still be surprising. Today, we're going to meet someone who has taken such a circuitous path and hear about the unique challenges that he faces as a result, as well as the incredible passion and value that such a background can help foster. Welcome to the ABA Law Student Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Todd Berger, faculty host of the ABA Law Student Podcast. And today I'm in the studio with our host, Shay Rodriguez. Hey, Shay. Hi, Todd. So, Shay, what do you have for us here today?
1: Todd, I am excited to present a discussion that focuses on a lesser known aspect of diversity, especially in the legal field. At a time when we're dealing with the ramifications of the court's decisions on affirmative action, and we're defining the impact that legacy applicants have on a classroom, a handful of lost schools are wading in waters that are not frequently explored by admitting students who have been justice impacted, which to the average student or listener, um, I think they would almost think that that's taboo in the legal community. And I was able to speak with our guests today about how the adversity of being significantly justice impacted adds to the classroom and the profession. And I'm looking forward to speaking to you about this as well.
0: For the sake of clarity, Shay. What does justice impacted mean?
1: So according to the law school admissions council, justice impacted individuals include those who have been incarcerated or detained in a prison, immigration detention center, local jail, a juvenile detention center, or any other like carceral setting. And those who have been convicted, but not incarcerated, and also those who have been charged, but not convicted, as well as those who have been arrested.
0: That sounds really broad.
1: It is. And by some estimates, one in three adults in the U.S. have had some form of a criminal record. So we're really talking about a large percentage of the population. And as you imagine, having that criminal record can make life harder and put some real roadblocks in place and change your thinking on what you think you could accomplish.
0: Sounds really interesting, Shay. So who are we going to talk to today to get a better understanding of this really important issue?
1: Today we're talking to Ricky Paniotti, a current law student and formerly incarcerated individual. He actually goes to Atlanta John Marshall and he grew up in New York City. And I'm not gonna give away the whole story, but Ricky's kind of first interaction with the justice system came when he was a teenager. And his kind of last sentence, he spent eight and a half of a 10-year sentence in prison for robbery. And during his time in prison, Ricky developed a deep passion for the law. And he didn't expect that he would have that opportunity to pursue a career as an attorney due to his history, which I think is like a logical kind of jump just because, like, Todd, I know you, you probably remember when you're filling out your law school application and you have to put in, you know, Even the parking tickets, you start to get like warm and like, oh man, is this parking ticket gonna be what keeps me out of law school? Or is the fact that I sped a little bit um, on I-95 gonna keep me out of law school? So Ricky and I really discussed whether that presumption of being justice impacted was widespread among justice impacted individuals.
2: yeah uh, and I would say for the vast majority of people who find themselves um in those type of situations would not think of uh law school as an option because of the you know some of the stigmas that are out there and also some of the fears and the and the misinformation as well but you know people should be reminded that law is one of the helping professions for a small group of people who actually go through these experiences they actually are able to use that time to transform and rehabilitate themselves and come out into society and reintegrate well. So it has its negative points and its positive points as well.
1: When did you even have the idea you could take the LSAT, compose an application, or pursue a, a JD? Where were you at kind of in your journey of the legal mm-hmm. system where you had mm-hmm. that you know, epiphany?
2: that epiphany built over time after I had already been in the workforce. I had already had positive outcomes for myself when I was released. So from 2010 to 2014, I've been in the workforce Mm -hmm. and I was fortunate enough because a lot of people, you know, run into some barriers there when it comes to employment. But I've been fortunate enough to be able to navigate that and have the, you know, confidence and actually have the work experience to be able to make it work for me. But I would say that after leaving the workforce, I had published a book that talked about my life growing up as a five percenter in New York City. Mm-hmm. And a good friend of mine, a reader, encouraged me to go back to college because at the time I had a GED. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I was like, well, it, you know, I don't even know if I can go to college. And mm-hmm. uh, it was through his advice and his information uh, sharing that I was able to find out that I could apply for college and get, you know, financial aid. And so I pursued that avenue and found myself at Queensborough Community College and had a lot of great professors there. But there was one professor that inspired me to want to pursue law. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he was my business law professor, Professor Stephen Hamill. And one day I was at his office hours and he had this poster for the Skadden Arps Honors Program in Legal Studies at the City College of New York. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the poster, I asked him about it. And he said, you know, you might want to think about applying. Hmm. And this program is a two-year program to provide students who are interested in a career in law with the resources that would help them prepare for the LSAT and and apply to law school. Oh, wow. And uh, I was fortunate enough to apply and get accepted into this program. And at the time, I thought that I was fast-tracking it to John Jay College of Criminal Justice (laughs) until I I went into my professor's office hours— Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wanted to be more informed about the route that I was taking. Uh, I knew that I was leaning towards an interest definitely in going to law school. But at the time, I didn't know that a person with my background was even capable of, or eligible to even apply to law school because of the, you know, prevailing views that might be out there. Uh, when, you know, people are misinformed, they would believe that somebody who's just as impacted could not even uh, attempt or even think about trying to become an attorney.
1: And and uh, can I tell you, I feel like it's a little odd that we are programmed this way because while you were incarcerated, you were able to work as a law clerk inside, Correct. So to correct. think that you could do that in there, but right. you couldn't come out and think that you could freely partake in this profession. Can you give right. a little insight into the work that you did there that... At least let you know that your mind could go there. Right.
2: Sure. Uh, while I was incarcerated, I was just sentenced, right? And mm-hmm. when people are typically sentenced, those who have some curiosity or concern about their case will attempt to go to a prison law library to research their case. Okay. Okay. And then um, I was one of those people that was curious about the proceedings and how they went on in my own case. And I went to the law library and spent so much time in the law library and I taught myself. And of course, with the help of other law clerks guidance, of course, I learned how to use the law books. I learned how to use, for example, the New York Digest Key System, mm-hmm. uh, which is a set of books. I've learned to use Corpus Secundum and uh, the Black's Law Dictionary. And I taught myself, in you know, uh, the Prisoner's Litigation Handbook. These Mm -hmm. resources in the law library were very instrumental to me learning how to navigate a law library and how to how to read cases. Mm -hmm. And so the law librarian took notice of this. Her name is Miss Waldron. I'll never forget her. Um, She walked up to me one day, little old lady, walked up to me (laughs) one day and said, hey, you know, I noticed that you spent a lot of time in the law library. Well, we are having a legal research course offered to the prisoners here. And you may want to consider, you know, taking this legal research course uh, mm-hmm. it might help better what you're doing now mm-hmm. and uh, I took her up on her offer
0: mm-hmm. and
2: I took the course and I ended up scoring the highest in my class
1: no surprise there ricky <laughs> <laughs> no um, surprise there ricky yeah
2: i mean i i just took such an interest to our legal system you know um, how it's set up and how decisions are made and the the legal reasoning uh, behind a lot of decisions. I just it just made me more and more curious. And the more I read, the more I found out, you know, the less I actually knew. But at the time, I still didn't know that I would end up in law school because I was still serving my time. But some of the work that I was doing as a law clerk and, and let me tell you, the Department of Corrections, they paid me 25 cents an hour. That was my prison wage, 25 cents an hour to assist prisoners with appeals, collateral attacks on their convictions. Sometimes they may want to, for example, uh, vacate their the judgment or vacate the sentence or modify their sentence. A lot of people who are incarcerated and already sentenced, they're trying to get some kind of redress for their you know convictions. Or sometimes they may feel like they have some legal issues. Sometimes they don't. But my job was to assist them to navigate those law books and to help them draft their petitions to the court. And I enjoy doing that.
1: To advocate from the inside, really.
2: Correct. Correct. It was almost ironic, right, that here I am incarcerated, you know, and I'm and I'm helping other people incarcerated. I'm advocating. But at the time, I'm not realizing that I'm advocating because at the time I believe that, you know, uh, there was a case that says something to the effect of when people get incarcerated, their constitutional rights do not cease at the prison door. But I believe that my constitutional rights were already given up. <laughs> you right, know, I, right. I, I was just totally, I totally didn't understand like my, my predicament. And so it took a lot of learning on my part to understand how I, the position that I put myself in for one and the responsibility that I had to take in order to get myself out.
1: And you know what, Ricky, I think that that mindset that you said, like you thought that your rights Forget being done at the front door when a lot of times before you're even in a real prison, you're in a a prison in your in your neighborhood or in a prison in your mind and you already count yourself out. When you actually finally decide that you are going to go to law school, you, Ricky, are going to Mm -hmm. go to law school Mm -hmm. and you get to that character and fitness piece. When we talk about navigating our circumstances. What gives you the confidence to, on that application, navigate truly the impact that the justice system has had on you and confidently apply to different law schools to move forward with your life?
2: I would say two things specifically. Uh, first being I have to stay true to myself and I feel like it's my personal mission to chart this path and mm-hmm. to give it a shot. Either way, to have faith in myself and just give it a shot. And when I get to that point where I'm honored to be before the character and fitness board or committee, I'll just, you know, have to stay true to myself and be open and honest and candid about my narrative, my truth, my story and not hide or not take responsibility or remorse for anything that I've done in the past. And and that's number one. Number two, uh, there was something that one of my professors at the City College of New York said to me that will, will stay with me forever. She, she said to me one day that, you know, when dealing with character and fitness or, or mm-hmm. questions about my past, mm-hmm. it is worse to attempt to cover it up, if that makes any sense.
1: No, it makes a lot of sense. And is that something that you had to kind of kind of reconcile with when you were even just applying to law school? Like, take that deep breath. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to tell them who I am, oh, no. what has happened oh, no, to no, me.
2: No. And- oh, no. I By the time that I started applying to law school, I had already been comfortable with answering the question and checking the box. Yes, mm-hmm. I have been convicted
0: mm-hmm.
2: of a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, there was like some employment applications. I was well used to being candid on, on job applications long before uh, college. And, and through that experience, and by the way, going on numerous job interviews and being comfortable with talking to the employer, to the hiring manager mm-hmm. about my past. You know, uh, I remember writing in on the job application, I would check yes, and then I would try to squeeze it in there if there was no room. I'd, I would put, <laughs> you know, we'll explain during interview.
1: Mm-hmm. That little you line, know, right? That yeah, little, little we'll line ex- they give you yeah. next to the box.
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, if, they, if and if that line was too small, I'll try to find a way to get it in there somehow and make it neat. <laughs> but I, I had gotten used to checking that box. And I recall some states now have passed a ban the box law, mm-hmm. uh, which yes. I thought was real cool. And i like to thank all of those legislators out there that voted to uh, pass the ban the box laws out there in that. the different states, because, you know, this is what I'm talking about, though. Right. That that's an example of of meeting folks who have been justice impacted halfway, give them a shot, give them a shot to at least explain themselves at an interview rather than foreclosing the interview opportunity altogether, you know, uh, before it even starts.
1: And I think that's like a great point, Ricky, because, you know, you and I have we've spoken about Reginald Dwayne Betts and I'll put some respect on his name and say attorney Mm -hmm. Betts now who graduated from Yale. He had a bit of a delay in being admitted to the Connecticut bar because of the concerns that the board had about his moral character and fitness to serve. And then also, you know, under Florida law convicted criminals are not fully allowed to take the Florida bar exam unless they've had their civil rights fully restored. Um, And they're one of the few states in the country with this requirement. But when you think about that, what is that hesitancy to admit them to the bar, to let them sit for the exam, say about what we really think about rehabilitation and the system we have in place?
2: Well, I would say this in all fairness, that each respective state, typically as I understand it, the character and fitness portion of things are governed by the Supreme Court or maybe an appellate court of the respective states. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that in some cases, yes, there, there is that hesitancy. We do see some cases of that, but we also see some cases of folks getting the opportunity to practice. And so I think that it's definitely up to the discretion of, you know, the character and fitness committees out there. But Mm -hmm. I have faith that the committees, right, the character and fitness committees will, you know, look at each bar candidate, look at their background holistically Mm -hmm. um, and not punish them for any crimes in the past. Not to say that that's double jeopardy, but I don't think that somebody that made it as far as law school should have to pay for the same crime that they may be judged then for something that they've already served their time for and completed. And so, I have faith, though, Mm -hmm. that the hesitancy might be warranted in some circumstances Mm -hmm. and may not be warranted in some circumstances. And I just have the faith that, you know, um, they will look at each candidate fairly and hear their story and, you know, vote or judge fairly.
0: So, Shay, this has been a really interesting interview so far with Ricky. Ricky talked about the idea that You shouldn't, after you pay your debt to society, basically be punished for the rest of your life. You're in law school. Do you see a lot of discussion about allowing reform individuals opportunity to be lawyers themselves or otherwise be able to contribute meaningfully to society?
1: You know, it's not talked about a lot in law school classes, and I don't even think it's talked about enough when we just have general conversations about career paths. I think especially, you know, Ricky, uh, we had a conversation prior to the interview, and Ricky is Caribbean. So when you even bring into it how immigrants are kind of, it's drilled into them it's success or nothing, you get into trouble and you're done, your life is over. And then you compact that with what the justice system does kind of do. Um, it takes you in and kind of spits you back out. And there are not a lot of programs in place or things in place to make sure that once you get out of that setting, you're able to get on the right path. His perception of everything, you know, I think... He has to have that mindset. He has to have faith in his process. He has to believe that this isn't all for nothing. Because if you don't have that optimism, like what do you have?
0: I think it's really interesting too, is that a lot of the people who are gonna be making decisions, matter of fact, probably all of the people who are gonna be making decisions about whether someone can practice as a lawyer are themselves going to be lawyers, right? They will have gone to law school and we know that legal education helps shape the outlook of people who end up practicing as attorneys. And I do wonder if we were able to interject into legal education more discussions about the value of reform, the value of grace, the value of making sure that people who have that hope that Ricky has and do all of the right things to be successful members of society. If we stress that, maybe when those people end up on the board of bar examiners and on these character and fitness committees, they'll have a sense that Yeah, you've paid your debt to society, and there's no reason that being a lawyer isn't something that you can do in relation to that. Uh, You can even really positively be examples for other people, and you may be able to bring a unique perspective to the practice of law that is important in various fields and areas of practice.
1: I completely agree. This subject matter In and of itself, it makes me think of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Jackson. She served as an assistant public defender in D.C., and her logic behind serving was, quote, I remember thinking very clearly that I felt like I didn't have enough of an idea of what really happened in criminal cases, and I wanted to understand the system. I think being more inclusive of justice-impacted students helped to cut through that disconnect and it allows the understanding to start in the classroom, there is value in that. And I think the sooner we grasp that value, the sooner we'll be able to use it.
0: We'll be right back. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change... Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S T A F I.cc and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Law Student Division. It's never too early to start exploring potential practice areas and building your network in the field. The Law Student Division provides students like you with resources and experiences aimed at helping them succeed in law school and prepare for what's next. Claim your full law student membership for just $25 by visiting ambar.org slash join. Shay, do you think that justice-impacted individuals may have... A unique perspective that they would bring to legal education, to classroom discussion, to a view of particular cases or the rule of law that you might not otherwise get just from the professor or some other students or the the book you happen to be reading?
1: I do think that. I think they bring – And experience and a background. And, you know, let me kind of also be clear. I understand that we all have a unique background. We all have our own story. But being justice impacted in particular, I think plays differently in the law school arena because it's something that we are fighting within and whether we are trying to make sure that justice is served in one way or the other, being able to actually hear about these experiences firsthand from the other side of it, I think provides a value that it can't be taught and I don't think you really can read it to really feel it and to really let it impact the ways in which you wanna move forward with your legal career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the more diverse perspectives we have the more we can better understand the law, how the law relates to the human condition and can make you a more empathetic individual. And I think it can have real world practical impact. It can make you a better lawyer when you understand things from perspectives that are different than your own.
1: Yes, that's kind of what we get into next.
0: Great, let's hear it.
1: You know, your adversity, I think, in that in that part of your life
0: mm-hmm.
1: can really give your classmates and your university an opportunity to take advantage of a different experience in the classroom. Yes. Yes. And that's arguably, I think, adding to the definition of what we consider diversity. Yes. Can you kind of name some of the ways that you've been able to contribute to the classroom? We'll get to the law school as a whole, but what have you been able to contribute to the classroom with your unique story?
2: I've been able to add a unique perspective. I've always tried to take opportunities to engage in the classroom and and to just just show diversity. Again, just when other students from different backgrounds uh, and different walks of life are able to hear, for example, my perspective on a case, I think Mm -hmm. that that might add to how they might digest the realities that You know, that we're reading about in these cases. Right. And these these our case books provide us with numerous cases from all different types of legal topics from constitutional law, civil law, civil procedure. Right. Contracts. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learn about all of these different cases. And when we have our classroom discussions, you know, I actually enjoy participating Not just inside the classroom, but in the hallways with the students, on the Mm -hmm. elevators with the students, outside of the classroom with the students engaging in social activities and mixers and conferences. All of these things add, I think, to the richness of the education that we will come out with when we graduate.
1: Right. But your, I think, experience is different than the average experience and mm. can especially add to, you know, when we're in an evidence class or when we're in a crim pro class or when we're in, you know, one of those classes that especially deal with criminal law on its face, just because not only your experience, but the cases that you were able to see in that law library so many years ago and the right. the uniqueness of that I'm going to call it in a weird way, opportunity mm-hmm. to be exposed to how the law really works in and out in different cases, sometimes the same way in ways that we would like to change, but also in ways that you would never think, oh, wow, this analysis. And you're able to share that with students who are not exposed to that.
2: Yeah, correct. I think, I think your point of view is on target. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's very near correct. I mean, I see it every day. But I think that also when I think about the different types of students from all the different walks of life in America, all coming together in these melting pots called law schools, mm-hmm. and uh, we're all learning this profession together. Overall, I think that the legal profession is moving in a, in a good direction with students from all different walks of life. And of course, different generations now are uh, entering law schools. And the legal profession, you can see changing. And I think that this right here will be very helpful to society as a whole when you have diverse law students graduating and you know becoming attorneys because a lot of their clients will be diverse. Mm -hmm. Let's just take, for example, Black men in America, right? One in three Black men at some point has been justice impacted, Mm -hmm. right? In some kind of way. Uh, But when you look at all of the different Professions And when you look at all the different needs of clients out there, a lot of these attorneys that are graduating will have clients who might be one of those black men.
1: And they can benefit from having you Correct. in the classroom. And on that note, the Law School Admissions Council in collaboration with the National Justice Impact Bar Association actually developed and administered the 2020 Justice Impact Law School Survey to kind of explore those policies and procedures that specifically affect law schools and justice impacted applicants and students. And they focused on the policies, practices and services during that 2019-2020 academic year. And they found that only two of 85 responding schools reported intentionally recruiting students who were justice impacted. But if we were to look at that number and increase it just a tick, how do you think that we as aspiring attorneys could benefit from having more justice impacted classmates to contribute to the classroom conversation and the analysis that's brought up?
2: I think I think students would benefit a great deal in the legal field. Uh, what we learn in the classroom is one thing, mm-hmm. and most of which is doctrine and theory. And mm-hmm. that's, you know integral to our education. But when we graduate, we will have to, you know, interact with different types of people. And for the sake of the students who want to become attorneys and seriously be able to be equipped and have the skills necessary and or have the knowledge necessary to be able to represent their clients because it could be the case that the client is justice impacted or might be facing an issue that involves being justice impacted. And so that attorney would want the benefit of having someone like me, like, you know, just being able to ask me questions, for an example, about these types of issues, aside from like, for example, we learn from our professors, right? But then we learn from each other. So in that right. respect, in that spirit. Right. It would be my hope that students would take away and that that if they have a, a student who has been just as impacted in their classroom to engage them as well. You know, don't be afraid. They're a person just like you. They just probably came a long way from whatever mistakes they made in life. And everybody makes mistakes, but it's 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 not what happens to you It's what you do, you know, after what happens to you that matters. And so it's not how we start. It's how we finish.
1: Exactly listen Ricky I want to thank you so much for what you've contributed to this conversation I want to thank you for what you contribute to the classroom and I cannot wait to see what you contribute to the courtroom thank you so much
2: you're very welcome thank you for having me
0: we'll be right back what are your major takeaways from your talk
1: My major takeaway is how full circle Ricky's journey has been. He was actually able to work as a legislative intern for Hakeem Jeffries and work on the First Step Act in 2018. And that was, of course, before he entered into law school. But it was a way in which he was able to see, hey, I can give back and I can go from being inside, getting paid 25 cents an hour, working in, you know, the prison law library to really researching and helping legislation pass that will impact those coming out um, in order to have a smoother transition than what it would be. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but you have also done some reentry work, correct? So you can kind of connect with that as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I I practiced as a public defender in Philadelphia for about seven years. And that was really interesting because I saw kind of the side of the criminal justice system where people are charged with crimes and trying to keep people out of jail or minimize what their jail sentence might look like. And I never really got to see people's lives after they got out of prison and what kind of difficulties or obstacles people faced. And so after I left the public defender's office, I directed a prisoner reentry clinic. And I did that for two years. And I was working with formerly incarcerated individuals trying to address the outstanding civil legal issues that can prevent successful reintegration. So it was everything from owing back child support. So people would go work and they would get minimum wage and then half of their paycheck would go to paying back child support and it was hard for people to earn a living, right, which created kind of an incentive to return to criminality. So we address issues like that. Oftentimes it's just simple things like you need a driver's license to get to a job, but people had unpaid tickets or driver's license suspensions from cases from 10 or 15 years before they even went to federal prison. And so it was a question of addressing those issues. And one of the things that I was thinking about when you were talking to Ricky and Ricky was talking about going to community college, right, and going to Queensborough Community College and how that really started him on his path. I represented clients who were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to go back to community college or go to community college in the first place. And one of the things that I didn't know that's really interesting is when you have to register for the selective service when you turn 18, so you have to register basically for the draft. Mm. And if you do not register for selective service, you are not eligible to receive financial aid. Well, many people who end up incarcerated end up there because their lives are really unstable, because their home life isn't great, because they're moving around from one location to another, and in all of that, registering for the Selective Service gets lost. Sometimes people aren't graduating from high school, they're later getting a GED, and sometimes they miss the part of the high school guidance counselor telling you you have to register for the draft or whatever it is. And so I would represent clients who just wanted to go to school and weren't able to get there because they didn't. They didn't have financial aid to kind of make it happen because of everything that had happened previously in their lives. So I was really sort of blown away by Ricky's story and by his dedication and commitment to making it to community college, right? And then from there to undergraduate and pursuing his legal education because there's so many obstacles that stand in the way of people who are formerly incarcerated just to even get to that community college stage, just to get to the undergraduate stage in the first place.
1: I think – you make like an amazing point in that so many things can kind of snowball into a problem that can impede you from really turning your life around. Because honestly, you're right. Like what happens when you're like, I only make minimum wage. I do have to pay these fees. I have to pay these tickets. I have to pay child support. And I'm trying to make more by going to school, by getting some sort of higher education, qualification, certification. And now I can't even get the aid because of, again, what happened in the past that I'm paying for. I think a story like Ricky is so amazing because not only does it talk about his ability to Overcome that and progress. But it also points to his professors that have helped him and, you know, kind of given him that motivation that he needed and that extra, you know, step or that extra recommendation that he may have needed to get to where he is now. And I believe that you have some experience with that as well, correct?
0: Yeah, I, I do. You know, I've, oftentimes uh, students will, will come to me and talk about how they were they were justice impacted. Most students, I think, not just as impacted in the way Ricky was, right, with a fairly serious con- conviction and then having been in prison, right, with a 10-year sentence. But Students who are listening to this, and I know that there are students out there who are just as impacted in a way that many students are in that they have prior arrests. Oftentimes, there might be multiple prior arrests. They're usually for fairly kind of minor things, but things like disorderly conduct or drinking underage or DUI, which I don't mean to minimize the significance of that, right? But it's not a, you know, a 10-year robbery sentence. And the number one thing that I tell those students, and I think you heard this from Ricky, and I think Ricky was 100% right based on my experience in terms of how you deal with this, you're going to go before the Character and Fitness Committee, of whatever state that you are in. The number one most important thing is you need to be honest about what your prior criminal history is. The Character and Fitness Committee, I don't think has any interest in saying to people who've gone through law school, who've passed the bar examination, right, who have stayed out of trouble. You can't be a lawyer, but I do think they're interested in making sure that those who join the profession have put that behind them, and we want lawyers to be law-abiding. We want lawyers to be ethical, and making sure that those are things in your past I think is really important. If you lie, if you don't disclose things, that is not a reflection that wrongdoing is in your past. You are continuing to engage in wrongdoing by not telling the truth. And so I've testified before character and fitness committees on behalf of former students. Everyone that I have worked with over the years who's ever had justice impacting issues has always, as long as they've been open, been admitted to the bar. And it might not happen right then and there. They might want to see If there's drugs or alcohol involved, that you take some time to get some treatment, or it might take a little bit longer to kind of do the evaluation process. But if you're open and honest, you've gone through law school and you've passed the bar, it's like you heard from Ricky, right? He remained hopeful throughout his entire journey, and there's no reason not to remain hopeful when you go before that board of bar examiners. So long as you're honest about what your past was, I think there's very much a future for people in the practice of law.
1: You mentioned students coming to you. How would a student engage with a professor that they want to ask for their help for some sort of recommendation if they know that they might hit a bump in that character and fitness process?
0: Yeah, so so a bit of a story. I I had a student come to me who was Justice Impact, right? The student had been convicted, had done a fairly significant amount of time in prison. The conviction was later overturned. And the student came to me because at the time, I was directing a criminal defense clinic, and because of their experience in the the criminal justice system, wanted to go to law school, right? They didn't want to have happen to other people their view of how the system had failed them, right? And so, student came to me, and the student was sort of alluding to their interest in law school and why they wanted to do the criminal defense clinic. And it was like obvious the student was trying to tell me something, but they did just tell me, right? And, and, you know, I've been a public defender for a long time. I had a lot of tough discussions with people about things that they did or didn't do, you know, and, and honesty was really important in that relationship. And I finally just said to the student, look, like, I think you're alluding to some different things. What do you want to tell me? And it's okay, right? Like, I want to hear what your story is. And so I think the student told me, and I think from there we ended up having kind of a, a really meaningful kind of mentor-mentee relationship over their time in law school. So what I would tell people is... Be open with your professors. Tell them who you are. Tell them about your past. I think this I can say, I speak for every legal educator. I really can say this is speak for every (laughs) legal educator. We're here because of the students, right? We're here because we value our opportunity to teach students. This is why we get up in the morning. Um, We want to work with students. And we have the greatest job in the world because we get to see you come into our office and and start out and not kind of – necessarily know that you're gonna succeed or know how you wanna succeed and then we get to see you graduate and go off and just be amazing lawyers. And there's nothing more rewarding than that. And so we don't punish students who come to our offices and talk to us about their past. I think you're here. We want to not just have an obligation, but we have a passion for working with students to make sure that whatever your dreams are, we do our very best to try and make those dreams a reality. So if you are justice impacted and you feel like you could meaningfully benefit from some mentorship or some relationship with a professor, don't be embarrassed about that. I can tell you that for all of us in this business, we just want to see you succeed. And if you tell us about your journey, we will do everything we can to make sure that whatever your experiences are, help you get to where you want to go.
1: And hopefully this episode, you know, hammers that in. We want to get more people across the stage.
0: Absolutely. More people across the stage who work hard, who deserve to be across that stage, who dream of being across that stage. There's more than one Ricky out there, and uh, you can make it happen too. Well, thanks, Jay, for bringing us this interview. This is really terrific, really engaging, and I know our listeners are really going to enjoy it.
1: Thanks, Todd. And thank you for going back and forth with me. I really appreciate it. And I love your perspective on everything. And a big thanks to Ricky as well. Of course, his conversation would not have happened without you. But thank you for being so open and honest and forthcoming about your thoughts and sharing your, your story with us.
0: Before we go, if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to share our podcast with your friends and fellow students. We want to hear from you, so send us your thoughts about the show or issues you'd like to hear about in a review. We at the ABA Law Student Podcast would like to express our thanks to our production team at the Legal Talk Network and the professionals at the ABA Law Student Division.